pray. Cal has already given me the look, noticing that I have my shirt tucked in and I have my jacket on today. And it's really for one reason. My mother is here. And uh, I would expect when our service is over to be asked why my shirt might be untucked and why I did not have a jacket. So here we are. Love you, Mom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and by giving us your word about him. Would you help us now as we open your word and put our eyes on it to have our hearts, our minds united together in love for you, for Christ, for your word. And so light in us a love for obedience to you and the truth of the gospel. Father, you know the ways that we've come this week, the roads that we've taken to come here, the paths of pain, the, the roads of sorrow. You know the temptations that we've faced and you know. You know how these things might encourage us, God. So we pray that you'd give us encouragement to continue walking in faith love and obedience. You know, Father, the ways we have come here and might be led to conviction. The ways in which we ought to repent and turn, acknowledge that we are in error. And so turn to walk in Christ-likeness for your glory and for our joy. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Well, this was the first sentence in our series in the book of Acts, which we began on January 7th this year. Acts is a compilation of God accomplishing His plan to save people from every nation through the unstoppable, Spirit-empowered witness of Jesus. Short version, the Father's plan For salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ, through faith in His Spirit-empowered witness. The Father's plan, the Son's salvation through the Spirit-empowered witness in all nations. It doesn't really get much bigger than that in the Bible. This is a description of the plan of God that has strings back to the garden, back to Abraham, back to Moses, to the law, to the temple, to multiple things as we'll see this morning. And just as a, as a quick aside, as I just glanced at Cal, reminded me, go back and listen to last week's sermon if you haven't yet. Cal did a wonderful job of tying the Bible together in context with his passage last week. A wonderful lesson on how to read the Bible and how to understand the Bible. So much of the Bible runs through the book of Acts directly. This is huge. This is big. And yet we're going to see this morning that God's big cosmic plan to save sinners from all nations through faith in His Son who was crucified for us sinners, who raised from the dead, who now reigns in heaven, that salvation through Him and the spread of His people through the earth would be through things so local, so normal, as our own homes, our houses. Kind of like electricity has to have a way to get from 
wherever it comes from in the world, to the outlet in your home, might you consider today your own home? Your own home be a way in which the plan of God is going to happen in the world. What do you think about your house? What do you think about your house? What do you not like about your house? I guess that you probably have a few things you don't like about it. What do, you, what do you love about your house? Hopefully this week it provides some shelter for you from the storms. Keeps you warm in the winter. Keeps you cool in the summer. It's a place that memories are made. Some good memories. Some bad memories. I was thinking about our home where I grew up in Sadler, uh, Texas, as, my, as, a, as a young, young, young chap. I remember the dirt pile out next to our house. I remember our swimming pool. I remember the, the basketball goal on the, the wooden power line in the backyard. And I also remember where I was standing when I heard that my babysitter had been killed in an accident. If you watch advertising today, I, I think you'll come to see that home decoration market is really kind of an Americanized version of the Taoist philosophy feng shui. By definition, feng shui is a practice of arranging the pieces in living spaces to create balance with the natural world. This is what it means to feng shui your home. The goal is to harness energy forces and establish harmony between an individual and their environment. You might be thinking of someone that you think, I know someone who's really good at that. You walk into their house, it just feels like you, you're in a magazine. If you decorate just right, if you shift this over here, if you have the right plant position and the right sunlight, the right music on, you get, you get peace from your house. Well, I think we all know, if you've been in any kind of home for any amount of time, eventually that house starts to fall apart. The decorations get old and wear out. Last night, my daughter... And I were on the back porch, and she looked up and said, Dad, it's leaking. And I said, no, that's not possible. It's probably just from the rain. She goes, no, it's dripping from the ceiling. Look, I said, sweetheart, it's not, it's not dripping. It's just been storming. Sure enough, when she, I, I waited until she left, so I didn't want to admit that I was wrong while she was there. I went outside, I stepped back, I looked up at the roof, and I noticed a spot on the roof just above where it was dripping. And as I got up on the ladder to look, there was like a one-by-three-inch hole that had gone entirely through the roof into our home, and under the roof, right through the plywood. Uh, I guess I should confess now. You were right, sweetheart. <laughs> the latest running theory is that it was a piece of a meteorite rock. I, we don't know. The driveway's cracked. The deck is not level. All kinds of things. What is it about our house that's useful to the Lord? I would hope today that you can, if just one thing, come to see your home as a place for the expansion of the kingdom of God. See your home as a place for the expansion of the kingdom of God. We're going to see this in Acts 2, the Megan Redforce, Acts 2, 46 in the first part of 4-7, we really see two things today that we just want to emphasize. We're fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church as they believed in Jesus Christ and began walking in allegiance and faith to Jesus Christ. Two things. One, they were together at home and they were together in heart. They were together at home and they were together in heart. 
You see in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. And day by day, meaning these are the things that they were doing those days. This wasn't just the first week. During this whole time, during the gospel spreading in Jerusalem, attending the temple together, they were breaking bread in their homes. Now, as we've been doing the last few weeks, we've been going one verse at a time, maybe for some of you painfully feeling slow, through one verse at a time, as Luke has taken time to not just chronologically remember, but qualitatively give us a record of what the church was like when they began to believe in Christ, gather together around the apostles' teaching, and live having been received and having been filled by the Holy Spirit. So we've been going through those one at a time, and today we see this sentence that might just seem kind of passive in its record. They were gathering the temple together, and they were breaking bread in their homes. There's a movement happening here in Acts from the temple to the home. A transition from the temple being the central place of worship in Judaism to the Christian themselves and then extension to their homes. The the details here in Acts, at the end of Acts, are not just here to historicize the, the church growth, but to show that part of the engine of the gospel to the nations was the hospitality of those who were filled by the Spirit and put their faith in Christ. Not just to historicize facts, but to show that part of the engine that spread the gospel to the nations was hospitality. Acts is recording the movement of the place of worship, the community of faith, and the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ from the temple where the name of Christ and the fellowship of the church was being pushed out to wherever persecution and providence would take God's people. And see that by the Spirit of God, He in His presence is now in the church. I want to take some time to see the biblical theology, if you will, of the presence of God having now shifted to be in His people, the church. God is worshipped in His people no matter where they are. And this has profound implications for how we think about ourselves and our homes. We begin to see this transition come to sharp focus in the Old Testament. God told Israel, His covenant people, that He would dwell with them in the temple in Jerusalem. That He would be with them. That that would be the place where He would reside among them. That He would not just be at His throne in heaven. He would be down in the temple with them on the earth and they make sacrifices to Him and that He would be present among them. They could come and make sacrifices regularly for forgiveness of their sins by faith and God would receive them and there would be peace between Him and His people on the earth. But we begin to see that things are not going well through the Old Testament. God does come dwell in His temple but His people begin to worship other gods. So when we get to the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is given a vision of God's glory, His presence, His throne, leaving the temple. 
At this point in history, Ezekiel's point in history, Israel had been taken into exile in Babylon. And Ezekiel sees the vision of Jerusalem and the temple. Israel had remained idolatrous. They had even come to decorate that temple with images and altars to foreign gods. And this week we were working through Jeremiah and our family devotion. And Jeremiah talks about the whoredom of Israel. And I kind of explained that experience like this. Imagine that if I, as your father, were just to start bringing other women home every night. To have dinner with us. And go sleep in our room together. And wake up together in the morning. That's what Israel was doing. Bringing other gods into the temple. And so Ezekiel is shown a vision of God because of his discipline and his care for his own name being vindicated, removing his glory, removing his presence from his temple in Jerusalem, removing his glory among his own people. God picks up and leaves. And Ezekiel actually sees God's throne that has wheels on it. It seems to be mobile. And then, along with all of Jerusalem, Babylon destroys the temple of God in 586 B.C. God's extension of His own judgment on His own people's sin. He will not dwell there with them. This is an echo of the garden. Will not dwell in a place and in a way that distorts my name. Well, then what happens? Well, eventually, 70 years later, just like Jeremiah prophesied, a remnant, a few from Israel who are left, they are brought back into the promised land. And they seek to rebuild the temple, Zerubbabel's temple. You could see more about it being built in the very short prophetic book of Haggai. They rebuild the temple, but several books in the Old Testament show us, you know, it's just it's not what it used to be. It's not like it was, not like the one Solomon built. It's smaller, it's not as well decorated. It's just kind of pitiful. And I want you to see the implications in Acts for us today as we watch God's Spirit move up out of, His presence move up out of the temple. And where does it go on earth? You can just think back with me. You don't have to turn here, but you might write these down if you'd like to go read them in their full later. Exodus chapter 40. Just follow along again the progression. Moses builds the tabernacle. They come out of the desert, they build the tabernacle. When Moses erects the tabernacle, what happens? It says, Exodus 40, 34, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Well, they finally made their way into the promised land. What happened there? Just like we mentioned a moment ago, Solomon built the temple. And when the priests had come out, having put all of the the pieces of worship in place, when they came out and dedicated the temple, the cloud of the Lord filled the holy place. God came and filled the presence with His presence. And then we see in Ezekiel, as we just mentioned, in the exile, God's presence is removed Because of the people's sin, for the sake of the glory of the name of God. And then Zerubbabel comes. Zerubbabel helps lead them build the temple. They're given the Spirit of God. They rebuild the temple again. And here's what I ask you to do this afternoon. See if you can go back and find in the Old Testament 
the time, the place, the moment where God's presence comes down into Zerubbabel's temple like it did in the tabernacle and like it did in the temple. Let me just give you a hint. You'll be reading for a while. You'll be looking for a while. And if you're looking in the Old Testament, you're looking in the wrong place. Where do we see this? We see it in Acts chapter 2. Go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Where does the presence of God progress? Progresses from the garden to Abraham, progresses to Moses in the temple, to in the tabernacle to Solomon in the temple. It does not regress backwards to a weaker, smaller remnant temple. It continues to expand. Like God said the kingdom would in Matthew 13. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. There are the disciples with the apostles, the 120 of them. And where are they? You might remember back to this sermon. They're in probably the upper room in Jerusalem where they'd been with Christ himself. They're back there together. They're all together in one place. And look what happens. Acts 2, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived... Just as Jesus had been promising in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, they were all together in one place, and suddenly they came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Something significant has happened here. The Spirit of God Himself has come down into a new covenant people. People who are defined by their faith in Christ. People who are now defined by the Spirit. And we see a judgment on Israel. The Spirit comes over here. Not in this temple. The Spirit comes to fill the people of God, not the place people had built for God. Oh, there's so much to say about this. A lot of ink has been spilt about this. But it shows up in the New Testament like this. You can write these passages down. You can flip there if you're quicker than me and trying to find books of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Paul makes a statement, do you not know, church? Do you not know, Christians, who have the Spirit, who, who believe in Christ? Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? It's part of his argument for, why are you doing what you're doing? Don't you know? You are God's temple. He says it again later in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, talking about sexual morality. He's warning the church, saying, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And most sharply, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 5. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5. Peter expressing to the church in exile their place with God. The church who is dispersed in persecution. Kind of like began to be an axe. 
1 Peter 2, 1 through 5, he's instructing them about holy living with their mouths in particular. Why? Why would Peter so be concerned, so concerned about what they have in their, their mouths? He says, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, that's temple language, not just a rock from the ground, but you, a living stone, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, not through lambs in a building, but to Christ, through Jesus Christ. And, and so, a guy named Robert Kara helped me by putting a sentence together like this to describe the shift in the temple in Acts 1 through 8, to the Christian, to the home. He just helped me notice the difference. In the house, you just read through Acts 1 through 8. In the house, believers assemble, pray, they receive the Spirit, they break bread, and they share possessions. But as you read through the same passages in Acts, in contrast, the temple becomes a place where you're just begging for alms and there's no help. It's a place of conflict, imprisonment, violence, and death for Christians. And so, when Luke records in those days they're attending the temple, the apostles were teaching there, doing miracles there. They're breaking bread in their homes. That's not just a record that they liked hanging out together and that they were really good Christians and they were really fond of each other. It's the beginning of a shift at Acts that's ongoing today. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, Luke records similarly, and every day the temple, they were in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Well, after that, Peter goes to share the gospel with the Gentile named Cornelius in his house. Cornelius doesn't come to the temple. Peter goes to his house. Later, the Philippian jailer who has Paul and Silas in prison, that prison is shaken and they are released and walked out. They share the gospel with the Philippian jailer. Where do they go? The Philippian jailer takes them to his house. And even way out in Corinth, away from Jerusalem, Paul went to preach in the synagogue, but was swiftly kicked out. So what did they do? They went to Titus's house, which was right next door. On many occasions, Luke mentions a person's name solely because they were hosting Peter or Paul or some other Christian missionary. And that's kind of all we know about them. Simon the Tanner. What do we know about Simon the Tanner? Well, he was a tanner. And Peter stayed at his house for a while, chapter 9. Who's Jason? Well, we know that his house was eventually ransacked, but in Acts chapter 
17, we learn that when there was persecution in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas went to his house, found refuge there. As we mentioned, Acts 18, they went to Titius' house. Who's Philip the evangelist? Well, we know that Paul stayed with him a while in Acts 21. And where does Acts end? Paul, in a house, preaching the gospel, with people coming to his house to hear him teach. It's a subtle emphasis in Acts. But it is an important expression of the indwelling of the Spirit of God which now dwells in the new covenant people, not the temple. The church was together at home and their Spirit-infused hospitality was a means for accomplishing the mission. And this is why Luke is recording this in this important short summary of the church's response to the news that Jesus is the Christ and to receiving the Holy Spirit, to hearing Peter's preaching and then being baptized. And the church begins, and they were going to the temple where the apostles were teaching, but watch Acts 1 through 8 and see how they are persecuted out of the temple, ultimately out of Jerusalem. Men, are you following the leading of the Holy Spirit to make your home a center of ministry for the kingdom of God? Remember that it's men largely recorded in the book of Acts, not women, as being hospitable. Simon, Jason, Titius, the jailer, all instigated, all leading in their homes being used for the spread of the kingdom. Philemon, later in the New Testament, others in Romans and in Colossians. Men, hospitality is not a trait which is unique to womanhood and motherhood. This is my gift to you today, mothers. It's not your job to be the sole hospitality driver in your home and fight your husband. Husbands, that's our job. Men, that's your job. Hospitality is actually a qualification for serving as an elder. You have to be known to be hospitable as a man, not have a really hospitable wife. You be hospitable. You take the lead in hospitality. Of course, wives, you ought to desire the same thing. Not because you're a woman, because you're a Christian. Are these the rhythms that you desire in your home? Does your week include this? Does your, is, is this as, you, as you think through your calendar, if you can even think through, I don't even think about my calendar. It's on, it's on a, what is it, what is it, Apple calendar, whatever it is, iCalendar. And I've got one shared with my wife. If you were to ever ask me anything, hey, what do you do on Thursday? I have no idea. But it's probably on the calendar. Probably something on the calendar. What's on your calendar? What, is there any, is there a name on your calendar for your home? It's not just men, it's not just women, it's singles too. Come to Acts chapter 16, Paul and his companions come upon a whole group of women sitting outside the gate in Jerusalem. They share with them the gospel, some of them believe and then one of them, who was named Lydia, convinces them to come over to her house. Where's Lydia's husband? 
I don't know. Does she have a husband? I don't think it says in Acts 16. Well, she has them over to her home. You could be single. You could be renting. You could be living out of your car. You could be hospitable. Hospitality and discipleship in the home is not a spiritual gift. I went back and looked this way just to make sure it wasn't in some list of spiritual gifts. It's not a spiritual gift. Hospitality is not, it's also not a personality trait. Let me just encourage you, not, you, you probably know some people in your mind who are good at hospitality better than others. I, I can name a few, right? You, you probably know that. And so you might tend to think, well, they're really good at that, but I'm really good at being alone by myself on Friday watching Netflix. <laughs> I mean, you don't know how good I can do that. It must be my gift. It's not a gift. It's an act of welcome that extends the love of Christ. It's an act of welcome which extends the meaning that the Spirit of God is in His people. They were not drawn to a place like Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4. There's a time, there's a time coming when you're not going to worship at a place. You're going to worship in spirit and truth wherever you go. And this is wonderfully freeing. Wonderfully freeing. Hospitality is a matter of welcoming others into your life, into your testimony about Christ, into whatever God has given you. You compare yourself and think about your own life and your own house. Think about the temple. You don't have to have china for, for you men. I'm talking about plates and cups and things like that. I don't want to hurt anyone's feeling who might be here in this room that cares about such things. But we got a lot of really nice china for our wedding. I could probably count the times on one hand that we've used it in 16 years. Fair? You might need two hands, let's say. The principle is there. If I can help it when you come to our house, we are doing paper plates. Trust me. The temple is filled with gold. Filled with it. An immeasurable, like, like billions of current day dollars worth of gold. Linen, brass, silver. And God said, I can't be here anymore. Not if you're going to worship idols like that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your home's like. It doesn't matter what your house is like. The welcoming thing, the, the agency of the movement of the gospel and the support of the church is the Spirit of God dwelling in Christians and them who have been cleansed not because they're really good and not because we're so shiny because we're so much better people. I've been talking to you guys this week. We're sinners like the rest of them. But because Christ has cleansed us from sin and we're sanctified by the Spirit... It's wonderfully freeing for your hospitality. It doesn't matter what you have at home or what kind of house you have or if you rent a home or if you, you're living in someone's home and you don't own that home and you have a roommate. 
Clint and I spent several weeks in India years ago, and we learned hospitality. We learned hospitality firsthand from the poorest people in the world. Absolute poverty. No concept of government assistance. Dirt floors, dirty windows, dirt everywhere. You can't drink the water. You have to ask if the water's been boiled. Purchased isn't even sometimes an option. No air conditioning in the summer. Flies everywhere. Sometimes not even a front door. But oh, there was hospitality. Chai tea everywhere. Always a chair of some kind. A smile. Humbly serving foreigners. No rush. No one's ever on time in India. Not, at least not in American time. Always late. Always showing up when they show up. They had to walk here. Had to take public transport here. They don't care. You got some, no one, who, what else do you have to do today besides spend time with us? No one's in a hurry. Uh, probably most of the places we went that summer, I remember thinking, is this over yet? I just, that's me. Never did I remember hearing an apology for how someone's house looked. They just share what they had. They're just happy in Christ. They just need a roof and a wall to sit in. Sometimes we wouldn't even sit in the house. We just sat outside. Give yourself to people in hospitality. Share food together. See what they are doing in their homes. In Acts 2, 46, they received their food. They broke bread. We should need to be disciples in this way, but let me just tell you, eat together. You want to know one of those things that got Jesus in so much trouble is eating with sinners in their houses. Oh, the Pharisees hated that. I mean, they hated him for that. It's a big focus in Luke's book, his precursor to the book of Acts. The apostles began learning how to go home to home how to center their lives on Jesus and how to center their lives on the presence of God in them by following Christ in His own ministry. So we get passages like we read this morning for the pastoral prayer. Jesus goes out to this Pharisee's, to the tax collector's home. And guess what? When you get there, there's tons of tax collectors. You just have to imagine one one tax collector would just drive a Pharisee nuts. Can you imagine a Pharisee walking in and seeing a whole row of tax collectors sitting with Jesus? Like he's at a tax collector convention. Luke 7, Jesus is actually invited to a Pharisee's house. Pharisee's house. The the religious elite in Israel. But man, he gets ticked when a prostitute comes in, notices that Jesus is there, begins to anoint his feet with oil. Do you know why Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son? You might know the prodigal son's story. The son goes out and uh, loses everything that he's been given. He takes his father's inheritance and wastes it and comes back and is welcomed by the father. Do you know why Jesus told that story? 
That chapter, Luke 15, begins this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What does the father do when sinful son comes home? He says, let's eat and celebrate in the house. Luke 19, Zacchaeus, officials got really upset that Jesus went to the chief tax collector's house. Getting together in homes, in the shadow of the temple in Jerusalem, bringing healing, bringing forgiveness and joy. That's what Jesus did in his ministry. And it's a picture of what he did on the cross for us. He laid down his life on the cross for our forgiveness, for our debt to be paid, for our stomachs to be filled. And this is how he told the disciples what it meant that he died on the cross. He did it with a meal. He did it with reinstituting the Passover meal when he told them, as Cal read this morning, this body, or this bread broken, that's my body in the new covenant. This, this wine, it's, it's my blood poured out. Here you go, take it and drink it. It's a picture. That welcome, the forgiving, sanctifying, cleansing welcome is Jesus in himself doing something in his discipleship's relationship with God the Father that they could never get in the temple. Not with man, not with priests, not with lamb's blood, but only with Jesus Christ himself. You want to be welcomed into God's presence? You want to be welcome with God? You want to be at peace with God? You don't have to come to this church. You don't have to go to a place. You don't have to travel to Jerusalem. I've seen so many friends traveling to Jerusalem lately. Kind of covetous, not going to lie. There's nothing there. I mean, there's lots there. There's lots to see and take. But, you know, getting closer to God by getting baptized in the Jordan. It's Jesus is the center now. His Spirit has come to indwell His people everywhere they go and everywhere they are. If you put your faith and trust in Christ today, in your heart and your mind, simply confess to God, I've sinned, but Jesus' body was broken for me. The Son of God's blood was spilled out for me. I can be at peace with God again, and then you can be free from all your shame, all your guilt before God and before man. And you can make your life about living like Christ for you. Acts is a renewing document helping us shift our minds and our hearts to fundamental outworking of the Spirit of God in the church. We see Acts 2. They were together at home. And briefly, they were also together in heart. Day by day, Acts 2, 46 and 47, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. Now, they were not just together at the home. They were together in glad hearts. They were together in praise and generous hearts. And they were praising God. This is what it means to be a Christian. That believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, received His Spirit, and be glad. And be glad. As Psalm 111 begins, I will praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright. We are made upright by Christ in the congregation. Christians, when you gather together at all, in any way, shape, form, home, church, praise God. Be thankful. 
be glad. We have Christ. We have come to believe Christ. We have our sins forgiven. We know that death has no debt that we must pay. Christ has died for us. He's risen from the grave. We have been invited into eternal life and separation from our sin. Be happy. We have reason to be happy. Listen, uh, here's something. Following Twitter, I mean, I just keep getting sucked back in. Every, every year about this time, about a month and a half out from the Southern Baptist Convention, I go to Twitter just to make sure that I'm keeping up with what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, and I just get depressed about the world. I mean, there's, there's so much going on out there. It, I, I, I think it is in vogue today to have something to complain about. I mean, it's popular today to have a chip on your shoulder about someone or something, some institution, some authority, some disaster, some misfortune. It, you can get light. If you just be mad at someone, you can get some traction out there. Church, not us. Not us. Don't let that ever be us. Look at Christ. We're the temple where God is worshipped and praised and we have glad hearts. Are you glad? Or are you praising God? Or are you just angry? Are you just disgruntled at God and at man and at Twitter and the SBC? Has your time with your brothers and sisters gone from joyful praising God with glad hearts in response to Christ and the Spirit? Or have you let it become a time where you just want to grieve all of your complaints? Grieving is one thing. Sorrow is one thing. Complaining is another thing. One pastor suggests this diagnosis. The root of our anger is ultimately ungratefulness. I try to teach my children that all the time. I try to teach myself that all the time. Why, why are you so angry? Well, it's because they did blah, 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 blah. Actually, that's not why you're angry. I know why you're angry. You're angry because you're un, ungrateful about something. Let's see if we can figure out what that is, what you thought you deserved, what injustice you thought you had received, and see how God has a better provision for you than what you could have ever wanted in that scenario. Remember the problem with Bathsheba and David? Remember David, king of Israel, he saw Bathsheba a few houses away. He called for her. Then he lay with her. He had a child with her and murdering her husband to try to cover it up. And you might assume that when God shows up through the prophet Nathan, he'd say, David, I can't believe this bad, horrible thing. You broke the law. You committed murder, David. You committed adultery, David. Shame on you. What did God say? Of course God was grieved about those things. But here's the first thing that David's heard through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. He said to David, you are the man. The man in the story Nathan had just told about the stealing of the sheep. You can go read later in 2 Samuel 12. The Lord says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I saved your life. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. A colloquial time-stamped sign of victory. Given the master's wives into your hands and gave you the house of Israel. And if this were too little, would I not have added to you as much more? 
What was David's problem? What stole his joy in the Lord? Was it just lust? Was it just temptation? No, it was, I don't have enough. One more. You can ask any wealthy billionaire, how much is enough? They'll all tell you a little bit more. What will kill fellowship in the church? What will kill gatherings in the home of gladness and gratefulness and praise to God? If you want to kill it, entertain, support, uphold ungratefulness. Entertain, support complaining. Unhindered, unchecked. Get together and boast. Get together and spend time comparing yourselves and talking about how bad those people are and how this member messed up. We go to house to house, we go to life group to life group or breakfast to breakfast and we open up the church for Bible study and we get coffee and we covet and we complain and we gossip, which is joyfully whispering willingness to tear other people's reputations down. We get together and that's what comes out of our mouths Remember, those in Christ have the Spirit dwelling in them. They, we, are the temple of God. And that stuff coming out of our mouths, that stuff being born in our hearts, shaking our fist at God ungratefulness, bitterness towards brothers and sisters refusing to forgive, Refusing to forbear sin. That kind of life, with the Spirit of God dwelling in us, is like taking a statue of Buddha and saying, let's just put that in the temple. That way when we bring the lamb for sacrifice, Buddha gets some attention too. Well, we we wouldn't say that. We, We wouldn't put statues of Mary or Muhammad up in the temple next to God. But when we live and sin with our mouths when we are not glad, when we are ungrateful, when we are not praising the name of God, even in our sorrow, we're mixed worship at best. Remember what Peter said. Remember how he counseled the church when he reminded them that they are the spiritual house? Put away malice. Cleanse the temple. Put away deceit, cleanse the temple. Put away hypocrisy, cleanse the temple. Put away envy and slander, cleanse the temple. Because you are living stones being built into the spiritual house. You're the house now. And so we see Luke takes time to make sure to mention everything they did in Acts 2. Everything they did during those days in Jerusalem. Everything they did was marked by gladness and praising God. Happiness. It's rejoicing. Rejoicing. Because they know Jesus is the Christ and He's died for their sins. Christians in Christ, we need not feel guilty about being happy. Because Christ has taken our sin. Be happy. If God has forgiven your sin, God's not suspicious about your happiness. If you've confessed your sin to God, and you put your faith and trust in Christ, who's died for your sin, and raised from the dead, and you're walking in open confession, you don't have to feel bad about being happy. 
God wants you to feel that joy. It's a mark of those who believe in Jesus Christ and received His Spirit. That this temple be a happy place. That there is, as we sang, joy in the house. I find sometimes what C.S. Lewis said to be true in his book, The Weight of Glory. Lewis says, I began to suspect the world is divided not only into the happy and the unhappy, but into those who like happiness and to those who, odd as it seems, really don't. Wait, do you like happiness? It's a bit of the weight of glory Lewis talks about. Churches, let me encourage you. The Lord has made us emotionally complex. You might be thinking, I don't have any room for joy this week. I, I, I don't have any space for happiness given my life. But we can feel joy, we can feel sorrow at the same time if we must. We can be glad while we can be sorrowful. We can be hopeful while we are in tears. Even if you must be glad in addition to experiencing sorrow, some good godly sorrows, don't lose the hope of joy. Don't lose the hope of joy. When they received the Spirit and they believed in Jesus, a repeating sequence of events began in the people of God. Someone hears about Jesus, raised from the dead, they're filled with the Spirit, and then the fruit is they are happy, glad. It just keeps happening over and over. Luke's using these senses to say this is what their lives were like. They're, they're glad. Their hearts were generous, and they're praising God. It wasn't, well, we found the Christ and we should probably go to church someday. I mean, I don't, I don't know. They're happy. I mean, just happy. And they kept being happy even when it cost them their lives. In Acts chapter 5, the chief priest called in the apostles, Acts 5, 40. They beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore and then they let them go. You can go, just don't talk about Jesus anymore. And then it says, Acts 5, 41, they left the presence of the council, Peter and John, rejoicing, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In Acts 13, verse 50 to 52, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drove them out of their district. But... They shook the dust off from their feet against them and they went on to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You spend your time with someone who you know to be a Christian, someone who knows Christ and has the Spirit of God, you might see them cry, you might see them weep, you might see them struggle, but stick around long enough and you will see an underlying relentless gladness. In them. Johnny Erickson taught us a Christian. On July 30th, 1967, when she was 17 years old, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay after misjudging the shallowness of the water, and she had a fracture between the fourth and the fifth cervical vertebrae and became a quadriplegic or tetraplegic, paralyzed, that is, from the shoulders down. In 1976, she wrote an autobiography. She titled, Johnny, The Unforgettable Story of a Young Woman's Struggle Against Quadriplegia and Depression. This last February, this February, she wrote an article titled, I Sing My Way Through Pain. 
She describes the parable of the man who went to find, he went and bought a field because he had found the pearl in that field. And she uses that parable to describe her experiences of continuing to find joy in God through the decades. Just listen to how she talks. She said, early in my paralysis and almost by accident, I unearthed an unexpected treasure. I opened the word of God and discovered a mine shaft. I dug my paralyzed fingers into a weight of incomprehensible glory, a sweetness with Jesus that made my paralysis pale in comparison. In great joy, I went out and sold everything, traded in my resentment and my self-pity, and I bought the ugly field nobody else would want, and I struck gold. After decades of using the pick and shovel of prayer and scripture, my field has yielded the riches of the kingdom of God. I have found a God who is thunderous, full-throated, joy spilling over. His son swims in his own bottomless ocean of elation. And he is positively, absolutely driven to share it with us. Why? She asked, as he puts it, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is after nothing less than our full joy. And so the church just got together at the temple and their homes and they were glad praising the name of God. Who talks like Johnny? Every Christian I know at some point When you gather here each week, gather together in homes and coffee shops, saints, remember the gladness in Christ. Two ways really quickly. If you find yourself distant from the ministry of your home, being a center for ministry, not together in home or not together in heart, number one, make sure that you are following the leading of the Holy Spirit. I think if we would go back to this church and ask them, guys, why did you do it like this? This is what Luke records of you guys. You're gathering on the apostles. You're, you're breaking bread together in your homes. You're sharing. You're selling all of your stuff to give to each other that has needs. You think they're going to say, well, we started reading Leviticus and we just decided it's time to obey the law. I don't think so. I think you're going to get some kind of answer that just says... I couldn't help it. That's what I wanted to do. It's a weird question. I loved it. That's what I wanted to do. Follow the Spirit of God dwelling in you as you put your faith in Christ. And don't quench that spirit. Have you just felt led lately to care for anyone, to read the Bible together with someone, someone older 
we felt led to reach out to someone younger. Someone younger, we felt led to reach out to someone older. Go visit them. Go ask them for wisdom. Go ask if you can read the Bible together. Maybe somebody's been at Millwood for a really long time, but you don't even know some of the people who've been here just a short time. The Spirit is drawing His people together. The Spirit is drawing His people toward glad fellowship around the teaching of the apostles, around the gospel. But this is not just a, a, like a, a secret sauce kind of art thing. Be led by the Spirit, but lastly, learn this in discipleship. You have to learn this. Not everyone's born good at hospitality. I remember reading a book by John Aquachekwa on prayer. He said, I found it a great encouragement that disciples of Jesus, the people who walked with him and prayed with him, had to ask him, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? <laughs> you don't just know how to pray. They actually had to ask <laughs> to get help learning how to pray. Well, did we not see that we are going to have to have some learning to do and some repenting to do when we heard Peter's story in, in Galatians 2 this morning? The Jew, or the, the Jew, the apostle that went to the Gentiles, that, that boldly saw the vision and went out to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel to him and baptized him. Well, when the Jews from Jerusalem came, oh man, I don't know those Gentile guys. Uh, guys, uh, we have to repent. We have to grow in this. We have to fail at this. And remember, Acts is a renewing document for us. What is the Holy Spirit leading every church in the Lord Jesus Christ to do? Learn it. Watch it. If you're in Christ, the Spirit is in you. And grow. Be together in homes and in heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your graciousness to give us your word. Oh God, there's so many ways we need conviction. So many ways of encouragement to keep going. Help us now for a moment just reflect on our own hearts. Guide us by your spirit. Help us, Father, by your grace, keep step with the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.